Hey, let's put our hands together and just thank the Lord for this worship team that led us this morning. So grateful uh, for them. Hey, grab your Bibles. Let's go to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. We're continuing our journey through the book of Philippians and we're in a little small series uh, in the book called Together We. And what we're, we're wrestling with as we walk through this um, series is that Paul is reminding us that uh, that as we go through this Christian life, that we don't go through this Christian life alone, that there is something called the local church that God has given us as a gift and we journey this life together. So as he's writing to a group of believers who are suffering for their faith and they're being persecuted for their faith, he wants them to remember you're not alone. Like we are together uh, on this journey. And this morning we're gonna look at specifically together we submit. Uh, together we submit. In case you didn't know it, uh, the very center hub of the thing we call the church, uh, the person is Jesus, right? He's the center of all we do as the body of Christ. Amen? And so our posture before Jesus, because he's at the center, is that of submission. Like, like we are to humble ourselves, acknowledging uh, who he is, not just in the universe, but who he is in our life as the king uh, who deserves our submission. So we, we have this posture of submission as we yield ourselves uh, before him. And it's in this posture of submission, as we see Jesus for who he is, that it transforms us. I mean, it transforms the way we relate to one another. It transforms the way we see circumstances and suffering of life. And, and it, it really transforms what we live for. And so this morning, this is what we want to see. We want to see Jesus for who he is. So grab your Bibles, uh, if you would, and let's go. Philippians chapter two. If you're there, say the Bible is true. We start reading in verse five. Uh, Paul writes this. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Now I would submit to you today that this, this, these few verses that, that Paul gives us here from verses five uh, through verse 11 is one of the most profound and clear declarations of the nature and the essence of Jesus that we find in the Bible. I mean, Paul really articulates for us the dual nature of Jesus, and here's what I mean. The, the Bible reveals Jesus in two ways. He is fully man and he is fully God. He's 100% man and he's 100% God. And this is the way that Paul describes him here. In verses five through uh, verse eight, you see the humanity of Jesus, that he put on flesh and he lived among us and he suffered and he died and then he resurrected. And so you see this, this description of the, of the physical human nature of Jesus. But then in verses nine through 11, Paul begins to describe the deity or the godness of Jesus. Begins to talk about him being exalted above everything, that he resurrected from the grave uh, as, as the Lord of the universe, that he is not just man, but he is God. And so Paul does a great job of explaining to us the dual nature of Jesus, that in, in his humanity, he dies for our sin, 
And in his deity, he is the worthy sacrifice who conquers death, hell, and the grave and now reigns supremely, inviting us into a relationship with him. And it's crucial that we understand this. See, I don't think that Paul is merely, as he describes the nature of Jesus, he's not doing this merely to give us an example because we, we talk about last week in the sermon, Pastor George, who did a phenomenal job, talked about the example that Jesus has set in his humiliation and his suffering and his death. But I want to suggest to you that it's not just an example that Paul is giving, giving when he is walking us through the nature of Jesus. I would suggest to you Paul is showing us is that we, we as followers of Jesus, we need to have a right understanding of the nature of Jesus. We need to see his humanity and we need to see his deity and see the position that he holds in the universe and in our life. And here's what I would say to you. What you believe about Jesus in regards to his nature and essence changes everything about you. It changes everything. It changes what you live for. It changes the decisions you make. It changes the way you see relationships. It changes how you walk through suffering and hardships. It changes everything about you. Now, I want you to notice something. I said what you believe about Jesus, not what you affirm about Jesus. And here's what I've noticed as as I've preached for years and even today as I've walked through this sermon. There's a lot of amening today when I talk about the nature of Jesus. Like we just affirm who Jesus is. But but I, I would just say to you, your affirmation alone is not enough. And there is a difference between what you affirm and what you believe. And here's the difference. You, anyone can affirm the nature of Jesus, but those whose affirmation has become conviction that has led to a belief in, this changes how you live. And if you really wanna know what you believe about Jesus, don't just listen to what you affirm. Look at how you decide in choices of life and how you evaluate the reason you get up in the morning and how you relate to one another. What you believe about Jesus will impact all those areas of your life. It changes everything. You see, the perspective that we get when we see Jesus high and exalted, that's that's really the prayer I think Paul has in this passage and what I have for this morning because I know that the more you get a glimpse of the greatness and the glory of Jesus, the more you're gonna see everything else in your life through a different perspective. Let me illustrate it like this. I need everybody to play on this illustration. So uh, all the services have done pretty well, so don't, don't be the one, right? Don't be the service that doesn't do well in this. So I'm gonna get everybody to do me a favor. Everybody's gotta play because you're gonna feel silly, and if everybody does it, you'll still feel silly, but you'll feel silly together, right? So I'm gonna, everybody, put your finger out like this. Put your finger out, all right? Why don't you close one eye, hold the finger out, and I mean, here's what you're gonna do. I want you to compare your finger to the backdrop of this stage, I right, compare your finger to the backdrop of the stage and answer this question. What is larger, your finger or the backdrop of the stage? What's the answer? The backdrop, right? So you see that the stage is much bigger than your finger. Now, here's what you do. The eye closed, finger out. I right, turn. Now, I want you to bring your finger in. Bring your finger in. Closer, 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 closer until all you see is your finger. Now, keep it up. Let me ask this question. What is larger now, your finger or the stage? All right, so now, slowly again. Now, pull it back. Some of you quit already. Pull it back, pull it back, pull it back, pull it back. Now what do you see? Is, is the finger larger or the stage larger? Okay, now stop for a second right here. What we've done is just an exercise in perspective. So we hold our finger out and we recognize the obvious, right? My finger is small in comparison to the vastness of the, sta- of the stage. 
But as the perspective shifted, as the, as the finger got closer and closer and closer, it appears as if the finger is getting larger and larger and larger. The point of which, a certain perspective, the finger, though it is much smaller than the stage, now covers the stage completely, and all you can see is your finger. Even though it is relatively smaller than the stage, it appears to be much larger than the stage. But then as you pulled it out, you begin to gain a new perspective. You were reminded again that this finger is much smaller than the stage, and you began to see the comparison as it truly is. Does that make sense? So what happened in this moment is not that your finger got bigger and the stage got smaller or vice versa. It means that as you change your perspective, you were able to see things rightly as they already are. And here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that the reason so many of us live our lives full of anxiety and and worry and being overwhelmed and there was stress in relationships and we walk through seasons of hardships and we feel like we're just like a mountain that's gonna crash on top of us is because so many of us, the situations we face in life, we're walking around like this and what it's done, it has blinded us to the vastness of the one that we follow named Jesus. It's not that Jesus is small and your situation is big. It's that your perspective is, is that you have changed the position of what you're looking and focusing, looking at and focusing on to the point of which what is relatively small, no matter how big it is, in comparison to Jesus now looks really, really big and he looks really, really small. And I want us to be able today to push back and go, okay, I, I got to get a better perspective. I gotta see Jesus for who he is because it changes your perspective, changes how you see everything else in life. So Philippians chapter two, we see this Paul describing this. I'm gonna give you three truths about Jesus that Paul gives us here uh, in these few verses, specifically verses nine through 11. Here's number one, write this down if you're taking notes. Uh, Paul wants us to remember this morning that Jesus reigns over everything. Jesus reigns over everything. Look what he says in verse number nine. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. Now, if you're gonna underline in your Bible or circle words, I always encourage you to do that. I want you to underline and highlight highly exalted him. So highly exalted. This is an an amazing word. In the original language, Paul is, um, he's using a compound word here to describe Jesus. And this specific word in the Greek language isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament. Highly exalted. Here's what the word literally means. It's it's a word that, that, that can be translated super elevated super exalted, that Jesus is not just exalted, he is super or hyper exalted, elevated above everything else. Let me illustrate it like this. How many of you can name the, the, the highest, the, the largest mountain in the world? What's the name of the mountain? Mount Everest, right? 29,032 feet. That's, that's, that's pretty tall in case you don't know. That's where airplanes fly, right? So that elevation is crazy. Now, if you were to go down into the hill country of Texas, the, you know, we have the, the hills down there that we call the mountains of Texas, right? And uh, compared to other parts of our state, you know, the hill country, you've got these what we would call little mountains all over the place. And so, we, you know, compared to some of the plain areas of Texas, those are really of a high elevation. But then if you drive uh, northwest and you begin to get to the panhandle, things get really flat. You keep driving, get to New Mexico, you keep driving. What's going to happen eventually? You're going to get to the New Mexico mountains. And what's going to happen there is that you're going to see mountains that when you compare those mountains to the hill country, little mountains that we have, you realize these are really just hills. Those are mountains. 
But if you keep driving north and you get to Colorado and you begin to go into some of the, the, the mountain ranges there, you're gonna recognize that those mountains, the elevation is overwhelming. And so they're even higher than the mountains maybe you saw in New Mexico. But think about this. If you compared the highest heights of mountaintops in the U.S. and compared them to Mount Everest, what you'll realize is the highest mountains in Colorado look like foothills compared to Mount Everest. So what we would say about Mount Everest, because it's the highest on the planet, that it is, it has a super elevation. It has a, a super exaltation above every other mountain in the world. It is in a class all by itself because there is no mountain on the planet that has that elevation. And this is the point that Paul is making. Paul is saying there is no being, there is no place, there is no planet, there is nothing in all of the universe no being that we see or being that we do not see that has the exaltation of Jesus, that he reigns with absolute power, dominion, authority, and sovereignty over everything in the universe. There is nothing. He is in a class all by himself. That is the position Jesus holds. Now, I wanna make sure we understand if we're gonna have great theology about Jesus, we have gotta understand that when it says that God has exalted him, super exalted him to this position. Jesus in this moment is, is not receiving a position that he did not already have. Rather, he is returning to a position that he had before. Now, here's what I mean by that. So the Bible communicates very clearly to us a number of occasions that Jesus is eternal. He's always been God. So this highly exalted, this super exalted position that Jesus is, is described as having in Philippians 2, this is the position that Jesus had before he came to earth. That Jesus reigned above creation, but what he did, Paul tells us in verses five through verse eight, that he humbled himself, that Jesus didn't cease to be God, but rather he laid aside his glory and his majesty and his exalted position, humbling himself to become a man so that he could suffer for us, die in our place so that we might have eternal life. So what you see in the incarnation of Jesus leaving heaven to come to earth is a temporary laying aside of his majesty so that he would humble himself to become the sacrifice for sins. But now that that has been accomplished and he is resurrected, he is now returned to the status he had before. That he reigns once again as the king of the universe. I'm gonna show you a verse of scripture that verifies this. John chapter 17, verse five. We see this very clearly. This is Jesus just before he goes to the cross, he prays in, in John chapter 17. And this prayer is, is basically Jesus making the petition of what would happen to him upon his resurrection. Listen to what Jesus prays. He says, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I have had with you before the world existed. So he is saying, Father, exalt me, super elevate me to the position that I had before the world existed. So what we see is, is that having completed the work that God had sent him to do for our salvation, Jesus now has returned to that place of glory where he reigns and rules over all creation. Now watch this for a second. I think sometimes this gets lost on us because it's almost like we ignore the suffering servant nature of Jesus when we all of a sudden see the king of glory, Jesus. And seeing them together as the same person is what blows our mind or should about the gospel. So here's what that means. This is the depth of God's love for you. The king of the universe. The one who rules 
and reigns over all creation, the universe for all time, who always was and always is, loves you so much that he willingly set aside that majesty to step into the brokenness of the world, serve those that he created, to die in our place so that in him we could have life and having accomplished that has now exalted himself back. He's been placed again in that position of authority and power. And now because of that space in the middle of what he's done, we can approach him now as his people. You see the gospel, see what this does when we see the dual nature of Jesus and this exaltation laying aside his humiliation and his humanity is this, is that we see both the heights of his power and his majesty and you also see the depth of his grace and mercy that the king of the universe, the creator of the world loves you so much that he died. The one who reigns, who above everything assumed the lowest servant of all of creation so that those of us who did not deserve his grace and his mercy might know him, the one who is now exalted again in a personal way. This is why we could live a thousand lifetimes and we should never get over the gospel. See, the reason so many of us, we, we get over the gospel and it doesn't blow our mind is because we see Jesus as so small, the gospel becomes small. But when you see Jesus as large as he really is, all of a sudden the gospel becomes an overwhelming truth that radically transforms my life. It's not just a, a, a message that gets me into heaven. It's, it's the path of which the king of glory has made so that I can know him. Highly. Exalted, he reigns above everything. And so this truth number one, Jesus reigns over everything. So here's the question, why does he reign over everything? And here's the second truth I want you to write down. Because Jesus is Lord. That's why he reigns over everything. Because Jesus is Lord. In fact, this is, a, this is the most powerful statement in all of the universe, for all of history. This is the greatest statement ever to be declared, Jesus is Lord. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to say it with me. I want you to say Jesus is Lord. Say it with me. Jesus is Lord. Now, do it with some conviction like you believe it. Jesus is Lord. Say it again. Jesus is Lord. This is the greatest declaration for all eternity could ever be made by anyone. Jesus is Lord. And this is the point Paul is making. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 9. Look at 9b, so it's halfway through 9. So God has exalted him and given the name that's above every name and bestowed upon him now, verse 9, the name that is above every name. So to go along with this super exaltation, Jesus has also received, to go along with that, a name that's greater than any other name in all of creation. Now, now this, is, this is powerful when you think about it. In the Bible, there's a lot of names that Jesus has, right? Like there's some really, Jesus is not known just by one name. There are so many names that describe why? Because he's so incredible that not one name is enough to describe fully who he is. So we think about the different names of Jesus. Think about this. He is Emmanuel. He is the wonderful counselor. He's the prince of peace. He's the mighty God. He's the ancient of days. He's the door. He's the chief shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the word. He's the light. He's the lamb. He's the bread of life. He's the rock. He's the bridegroom. He's the alpha and the omega. And that's just getting started. And every single one of those names are mind-blowing names. But here is what Paul says. There's a name that Jesus has received that trumps even those names. Now here's the question. What is that name? Now, it's easy for us 
to just jump in and give the Sunday school answer, it's Jesus. But I would suggest to you, if he's given a name, that means he didn't have it previously. He was not recognized of this previously. So the name can't be Jesus because we know him as Jesus before this moment. So the question is, what is the name that's above every name? Look at verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, I want to suggest to you, that's the name that's above every name. Is that Jesus is Lord. Now, I want to teach you something that I think is so crucial. So this word Lord here, in uh, the original language, in, in Greek, is the Greek word kurios. Kurios, translated Lord. Now, why is that significant? And this is be a little bit of a history lesson, so, so go with me. So the Old Testament um, that... that we have, the Old Testament was written, the original language was Hebrew. But the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, was translated years ago into a translation that we know as the Septuagint. What is the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. If you're with me, say, uh-huh. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, the covenant name for God, the most sacred name for God, the name of God that is above every name. It was so sacred that, that people would not even speak this name of God. It is Yahweh. It, it is the, in Exodus chapter three, when Moses is called to set the people free in Egypt, he says, who do I tell Pharaoh sent me? He says, you tell him Yahweh has sent you. You tell him the God that is, I am that I am has sent you. That became the highest name that you could ascribe to God. That is the, the name of the Lord. And in, in the Old Testament, it is translated Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Now, follow me for a second. So the Hebrew, Yahweh, when they were translating the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek Old Testament, every time they used the word, go back to the scripture here, Lord. Every time they translated the places that says Yahweh, they would put Kyrios. It was the Greek version of the Old Testament covenant name, Great I Am. Here's what that, let me see if you a little translation. Here's what that would say. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father that he is the great I am, that he is the living God, the covenant God. He is the one who is, who was, and is to come. That is who he is. In fact, here's what Paul does. Paul is, is taking us back a little bit to Isaiah. See, Isaiah, and there's a section of scriptures in, the, in Isaiah 40s, I just call it the 40s, where, where the Lord is reminding the people of who he is, and he's using the covenant name God to describe himself. I want you to listen to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verse 8. God says this through Isaiah, I am the Lord, I'm Yahweh. That's the, what that means. That's the where we would get our English, our Greek translation, kurios. I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. That is my name. Now follow this. 
I alone possess the name of the great I am. This is what God is saying. I alone am the great I am. I alone am Yahweh. That is my name. No one else can have that name. It is my name and my name alone. And because of that, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Now notice what God is saying. I am Yahweh. I am the great I am. There is no one else who gets that name. That name belongs to me and me alone. And Paul shows up pointing back to Isaiah 42 and says, and God has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord. He is Yahweh. That is his name, and it belongs to no one else. This is powerful. He's painting a picture of the majesty of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. Paul is saying to us, for all eternity, Jesus Christ of Nazareth will eternally be recognized as the great I am forever and ever and ever. That is why Jesus reigns above everything because Jesus is Lord. Now I want you to follow the conclusion here. Follow, follow what's, what's happening here. Now listen to this. Three truths and they build on one another. Jesus is Lord. I'm sorry. Jesus reigns over everything. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Now what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that all creation will bow before King Jesus. All creation will bow before King Jesus. Not might, will. Because of the position that he holds and the title, the name above every other name, the name Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. In fact, that's, that's exactly what he says here. Look what he says in verse number 10. He says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, eyes right here for a second. Again, I, I want to make sure you own the text. So I reminded you of Isaiah 42. Where, where God is saying, I am the Lord, that is my name. And now Paul is attributing, that is the name that's above every name, that Jesus is Lord. So when Paul gets into this latter part where he says every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, he is actually quoting that section in, in, in Isaiah, Isaiah the 40s. And he actually it, it quotes almost verbatim Isaiah uh, 45. See, throughout this section, God is reminding the people, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. My glory and my worship will go to no one else. And then when you get into Isaiah 45, I want you to listen to what Paul is quoting here. This is powerful, verse 22. This is what the Lord revealed to the prophet Isaiah. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Verse 23. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue confess or shall swear allegiance. You hear what, what's happening here? Paul is showing us that, that this, this the prophecy, this the way that God has revealed himself to Isaiah, Paul is showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment. So when God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I am offering salvation, and salvation will be found in no one else, and that ultimately every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance, it finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Paul does not want us to make any mistake here. 
He is he's saying emphatically, Jesus is Lord. There is no other. Salvation is found in him alone. And every knee will ultimately bow. And every tongue will ultimately declare Jesus is Lord. So make no mistake, church. Jesus is not just the suffering servant who died for your sins. On Friday, they crucified him and they put him in a borrowed tomb. But on that first Easter Sunday, when the stone was rolled away and the lifeless body of Jesus received life again, he no longer just simply can be known as the suffering servant who died. He is the reigning king of glory who has all power and all authority. Let's make no mistake about that. That he is the king of glory. And so here's what that means, that that Jesus is the one that everyone ultimately will bow to, will submit to. Now notice what he says here, verse 10b. Look what he says here. Every knee, everybody say every. Every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. All of creation, both visible and invisible, will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, the context really helps us understand the magnitude of what Paul is saying. So Paul is writing to these Philippian believers, and these believers are suffering for the gospel. They're being persecuted for the gospel. Let me tell you why they're being persecuted. It's because these first century believers grew up or or were were, were existing in a Roman-dominated society. And here's what that meant. That Caesar, the one who ruled over Rome, he dominated the known world. And what he did is is this. He said, look, you can worship in my kingdom any God that you want, but here's what you're going to do. You're going to declare that I am Lord. So Caesar actually uh, inscribed deity to himself, ascribed rather, deity to himself. And and if you look at the history and the archaeology, here's what you'll find. On their currency and on some of their buildings, here's what you would find. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. In fact, he was so committed to his lordship that he actually put laws into place that if you were to declare anyone other than Caesar as Lord, it was punishable by death. You died because you declared someone else as Lord. So the reason these believers are suffering is because they know that Jesus is Lord. And so the confession of faith for the church historically has been Caesar is not Lord. Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. And we're going to declare him as Lord regardless of the cost. Now think about this for a moment. They're suffering because they're declaring that Jesus is Lord. And then Paul is reminding them as they're suffering, I want you to remember church, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Even Caesar will bow his knee and he will open his mouth and he will declare emphatically, I am not Lord Jesus is. You think about the confidence those believers would have found in that moment. Yeah, you're suffering today, and there's sorrow today, but there's a day coming when Caesar himself, he will fall to his knees, and he will cry out, Jesus is Lord. Church, listen to me. Saddam Hussein will declare Jesus as Lord. Extreme Muslim groups who persecute Christians worldwide because of the name of Jesus, they will bow and they will declare Jesus as Lord. Vladimir Putin will declare Jesus as Lord. 
His power may be unchecked today, but it will not be unchecked forever. He will declare Jesus as Lord. Satan himself, just before he is cast into eternal torment, he will open his mouth and he will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the hope that we have. And so, listen, make no mistake. When it comes to Jesus, you have got one of two options. You bow or you bow. You bow or you bow. You say, I thought it was two options. No, it is two options. You either bow by his grace and his mercy and his love and respond to what he's done on the cross and through the resurrection and you do so willfully and submissively or you will bow by his justice and his wrath when you will be forced to declare that he is Lord. But make no mistake, you bow or you bow. So every single one of us, we say this stuff all the time like, well, you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And we gotta change that language. You wanna be saved, you gotta make Jesus. Listen, you don't make Jesus anything. He is who he is. Jesus is the Lord of every life. Now, the posture of that life is either one of submission or one of rebellion. So where you stand before Jesus does not change his position in your life. It only changes your position in relationship with him. Jesus is Lord. Now, I'm gonna give you a couple of applications. I want you to write these down. Because remember, Paul is, is writing to these believers who are suffering together. They're, they're journeying through this together. And, and the common link that they have is this, they are submitted to Jesus. Jesus is Lord and he reigns over everything and every knee will bow. And so as the church of Jesus, they, they, they're living in this relationship in the posture of Jesus, you are Lord. And here's what that means for them. And here's what it means for us. Three applications, write the first one down. The first is this, we need to be reminded that we have a common confession as the church, we have a common confession. What is that common confession? Jesus is Lord. You see, the entry into a relationship with God is through Jesus in a declaration that Jesus is Lord. Historians tell us this, don't miss this, that this declaration, Jesus is Lord, it was the mantra of the early church. It was the declaration, this is how you became a believer. You declared Jesus is Lord. And many scholars would say that Jesus is Lord would be considered shorthand for the entirety of the gospel. So whenever you would say Jesus is Lord, what they would understand is this declaration that Jesus is Lord, it is a declaration that the God of the universe stepped down and he lived a perfect life and he died for our sins and he is resurrected and he reigns as the king of glory and I am willfully submitting myself to him as Lord. It would have encompassed the entire gospel. In the earliest early church, to become a believer, you had to publicly make this declaration. You would walk to a pool or to a river and you would stand with everyone around and you would lift your voice and you would declare, Jesus is Lord. This was a way of, of showing affirmation to the entirety of the gospel. And then publicly, you would be baptized into his name. Listen, for many believers, that declaration and that baptism was a death sentence. It actually meant something. And I want you to hear me say this. This confession, Jesus is Lord, believing in the gospel is the only hope that we have. And it what's, it's what brings us together as the people of God. In this room, there's so much diversity. There's so much difference. There's so many things that we don't have in common. But you know the one thing we have in common that will last for all eternity? No one in this room is a believer in Jesus, who's a follower, who's been saved by Jesus without confessing that Jesus is Lord. That confession is what unites us now and will unite us for all eternity.
So all of our differences, they're gonna fade away and they're not gonna be important and they're gonna be a distant memory. But what is the common link that we have? Jesus is Lord. And do you realize this common confession that we have? For all eternity, we will continue to confess Jesus is Lord. Here's number two. Write this down. We also have a clear mission. We have a clear mission. What is the mission of disciples of Jesus? What is the mission of the church? It is to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, not just to confess it for ourselves and salvation, but to proclaim it so that others too might confess Jesus as Lord. Now listen, this is where the rubber meets the road and this is where you kind of get in conflict with culture. You ever wondered why it is that Christianity is most hated among all of religions, even though if you really get down to authentic Christianity, no other faith system on the planet has done more good for humanity than Christianity, and yet we're the most despised. Let me tell you why that is. Why it is that extreme Muslims get a greater pass than Bible-believing Christians. It's because of the decoration of Jesus as Lord. You see, the reason other faith systems get embraced because at the center of other faith systems, there may be a God that they're pursuing, but they pursue that God on their own terms. I will do this to know him. I will obey this. I will follow this. I will. So what is it? Man's in charge. We don't mind that as fallen humanity because we're still in charge. But Jesus says, you can't have a relationship with God unless it's through me. And you've got to declare that I am Lord, that I am king of the universe. And you have no hope apart from what I have done for you. And the human heart hates that. And that is why when you begin to live on mission, listen, this mission is clear, but it has a cost. So to declare that Jesus is Lord is a a statement that nullifies every other faith system on the planet that tries to find another path. See, if Jesus is Lord, he's the only way. If Jesus is not Lord, there is no way. And so we have a a clear mission. We should not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. There's the power of God and salvation for those who believe. We, we We have been given Holy Spirit power to walk on this mission and declare this. Here's the third truth. Third truth is this. So we have a common confession, a clear mission, and we have a coming exaltation. A coming exaltation. Now, eyes right here just for a second. I don't want you to miss this because this is where the hope that we find in in the person of Jesus really comes from for us in this life and the life to come, that there is a coming exaltation. Now, eyes right here for a second. Through this section of scripture, Paul is showing us an example of Jesus. And I told you, it wasn't just to give us an example. But in the the midst of telling us who Jesus is, Jesus exemplifies for us how we are to live our life. And here's what I mean. In verses five through eight, Paul describes the humiliation of Jesus, that he humbled himself. He laid aside his deity. He became man. He served humanity. He didn't defend himself. He was simply obedient to the Father. In the face of all opposition, he didn't bow up. He didn't fight back. He just says, I'm here on a mission. And he humbled himself and became a servant. And because of that obedience, he has now been exalted. So following humiliation, listen to this, comes exaltation. You humble yourself before the Lord and his plan for your life, it comes at a cost and there's gonna be suffering involved but at the end of that humiliation, there is an exaltation. That's, that's what he's showing us here. 
that there's a day coming when Jesus returns and all of the shame and all the embarrassment and all the suffering and all the cost that is involved with following Jesus and the world ridiculing us thinking we have lost our mind and that we're crazy because we follow Jesus with such allegiance and we declare that he is Lord. This, this humiliation that we go through following Jesus on planet earth, when he returns, it will result in an exaltation. The scripture says we will reign with him in glory forever. And in that day, it's gonna be worth it all. Why don't you listen to what Paul says, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. The saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, listen to this, we will also reign with him. Paul is saying, listen, if you die with him, you're gonna live with him. And yes, there is suffering and there is persecution. But if you endure, listen, you will also reign. So Jesus reigns above everything because Jesus is Lord and every knee will bow and heaven and earth and under the other can declare that Jesus is Lord. And when he returns, though we've walked through seasons of humility, we will be exalted with him and we will reign forever as his people. Paul says, this changes your perspective for the now. Here's what I mean. Paul says this in Romans chapter eight, verse 18. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory or the exaltation that will be revealed to us. Paul's saying, like the stuff that's happening in the present time, it can't compare with the glory that will be be revealed in the time to come for all eternity. So this means that there in the sufferings, there's an expiration date on your suffering, but there is no expiration date on your exaltation and your glory forever. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light and momentary affliction, and if you know anything about the apostle Paul, this man was beaten and whipped and suffered in prison and eventually put to death for his faith. So when he says light and momentary affliction, Like Paul's light and our light are not the same light. Just know that. We can't fathom what he went through, but he says, I see what I've gone through as light and momentary. It's not here forever. It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, exaltation beyond all comparison. You realize that? Listen, it might be decades extended seasons of suffering following Jesus. As we make our way through life, remembering Jesus reigns above everything because Jesus is Lord and being reminded that all, all, everyone will, will worship him eventually. As we walk together with this common confession and this clear mission, we keep our eyes on the coming exaltation because there's a day coming when he will open up the skies and the king will return. And in that moment, we'll be caught up with him in exaltation. And that day is coming where he's gonna wipe away the tears and no more suffering and no more pain. All of that will be erased and forever we will reign with the king of glory. That's the day that's coming, church. That's the day that's coming. And that's what makes these days worth it. Let me just illustrate it like this in closing. This is uh, NBA uh, finals are happening right now. And um, I'm a big basketball guy, so I I try to watch every game I can. can. And my Warriors, who I'm cheering for, they they didn't win the first game. Hopefully tonight they'll, they'll catch up and make it a series. But here's what I love about the finals. The regular season's over, and really the playoffs are over. You got two teams at the very end. 
And that, that the finals are at the end of a very long season, 82 games before the playoffs. And for these athletes, some of the best athletes in the world, they're pushing their body to the limits. And here's what's happening through that whole season. There are ups and there are downs. There are wins and there are losses. There's suffering, there's pain, there's blood, there's sweat, there's tears, there's bumps, there's bruises, there's friction, there's being analyzed by the world, there's criticism, there's, there's all of those things happening. There's injuries they're trying to fight through. There's anxiety and stress. All of that's happening through the season. And they keep pushing, they keep pushing, getting the playoffs. And all of a sudden, the playoffs, those things don't go away. They're compounded. They're elevated. Now there's more stress and more pain and more potential injury and more bumps and bruises and more criticism and all of that until they get to the very end. There's two teams now. And in just a week or two, there's going to be, at the end, one team. At the end of all of that journey, that team that wins the NBA championship, they will stand and everyone will say, they are the champions of the world. They will stand, for lack of better terms, in exaltation above all of the other teams that failed. And what's amazing is, is that at the end of that journey, even though you got guys bandaged up, limping around, when all of a sudden the confetti falls and the media comes out and they start interviewing these players who are on this long journey of suffering and pain, of ups and downs, wins, losses, all of the things that they go through, and there they begin to describe and they take a little journey down memory lane in different ways and they talk about the, the, the obstacles and the things they went through. And every single time, here's what they say, but it was worth it because here we are. We're champions. And all of a sudden, the glory of that championship outweighs everything they went through to get to that point. Church, let me tell you, they do this for a championship that in four months, we start talk, we'll start talking about next year's championship. It's, it's, a, it's a glory that is fading. But we as believers, we're in this journey of life and there is a glory and an exaltation that's coming to us that will last for all eternity. When Jesus Christ returns and he comes, establishes his throne and makes all things new forever. Jesus, champion of the world, champion of the universe, king of glory, and we will be there, his people, forever reigning with him over the universe. And listen, and because we know that day is coming, the coming exaltation, we know that on this journey, there are gonna be moments we wanna quit, we wanna throw in the towel, I just wanna go to the locker room, I don't wanna keep going, but in light of that day, I'm gonna keep fighting, keep pressing what Jesus is Lord it's all coming to a great end and when we get to that moment we will look back and we go oh man it was so hard but it was so worth it because here we are today for all eternity and we are made new in him that's the hope that we have church so our response this morning is very simple very simple response there are some of you in this room today you need to declare Jesus is Lord you're sensing in your heart you've never surrendered your life to him and today is the day for you to do that it's not an accident. So I, I, not to scare you, I'm just gonna say this very emphatically. If you sense you need to declare Jesus as Lord and submit your life to him today, then I would say to you, in light of every knee will bow and every tongue confess, you have an invitation by his grace to willfully submit to him and receive salvation. But make no mistake, your no today will be a yes eventually, but on completely different terms. So I'm encouraging you, if you need Jesus today, in the moment there's gonna be men and women up here, come and be prayed for and say, hey, just walk up to him and say, I need to submit to Jesus as Lord. I need salvation. There, is other, there are others of you, here's my prayer for you today, all right? You don't have to follow me, I'm just gonna show you. You're living like this. I'm hoping today that you've been able to push back 
gain perspective. So maybe today that, that perspective has been given and you want to come and be prayed for, come and kneel this altar, or may just want to worship and go, I just want to see Jesus for who he is. My encouragement to you is if this is where you are, push back. Look beyond whatever it is. See the greatness of Jesus. Father, I love you. And I ask now in the name of Jesus that you would move the next couple of minutes as we respond to your word. Lord, I pray for the person in this room right now who knows they, are, they don't know you. I pray that because of your word, they would leave their seat in a moment and come and just talk to someone and say, I need to be saved. For those overwhelmed by the circumstances of life, sufferings of life, help them push away and see clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name.